0: C.S. Lewis once famously said he did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't because the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are horrible, they're not awful, they're not boring. It's just that according to C.S. Lewis, they're hard. They're very difficult to swallow, hard to hear, hard to put into practice. He didn't like the Sermon on the Mount. Elizabeth Ochtemeier has written, if you have a problem with a biblical passage, it's not the bible's problem, it's yours. Amen. Okay. Remember you said amen to that. <laughs> Last week I shared with you my all-time favorite bible verse. Remember that? John 16:33. In this world you will have trouble, but Jesus says, "Take courage, take heart. I have overcome the world." That passage is a deep encouragement to me. You can encourage me by quoting that passage to me when you see me out in the halls or out in the parking lot. Remember, Alan, in this world you will have trouble, but take courage. Christ has overcome the world. You can quote that verse back to me anytime you'd like. Now, what I don't want you to quote back to me is like, don't come up to me and say, Job 16.3. Will your long-winded speeches ever end? Don't do that, okay? And don't quote to me from Psalm 9 verse 5. I will not accept your bull. Okay, don't. I don't want to hear it. It's not helpful. It's not encouraging. So my favorite verse last week, I pray that it was an encouragement to you. I pray it was a blessing to you. I pray that today my least favorite verse in the Bible will also bless you. Maybe in a different way. Okay? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. Luke chapter 12, and Jesus in Luke 12 is telling some parables here about a principle. This is a foundational guiding truth. And this principle isn't totally clear until Jesus states it explicitly at the end of verse 48 when he says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. If you have a problem with something Jesus said, it's not Jesus' problem. It's yours. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Can you see why maybe I don't like this verse? These words of Jesus are hard. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. When I read this verse, when I hear this verse, I feel like I've been shot with a harpoon. Like right in the gut. And a harpoon, you know, when it hits you, it it hurts and it wounds, but that's not all it does. You can't shake it. In fact, the harder you try to shake a harpoon, the more it digs in, the deeper it gets, and the more damage it does. I guess. I've never really been shot with a harpoon, but that's what I hear about harpoons, And that's the way I feel when I hear this verse. Now, if you'll back up a couple of verses, Jesus starts this teaching in verse 35 when he says, be dressed, ready for service. If you've got the KJV, if you've got the King James Version, it translates it literally word for word, gird your loins. Let your loins be girded. In other words, take your outer robe and tuck it inside your belt because we're about to do some work. Right? We don't hear people say, gird your loins anymore. We don't say that anymore, except maybe in extremely special circumstances. Like, I'm thinking if you're at a friend's house and you're about to help him move a sleeper sofa up two flights of stairs, right before you pick it up, one of you might say, gird your loins. We know what that means, right? It means get ready. Prepare yourself, because we're about to do some really hard work. And then Jesus says, keep your lamps burning. Are you with me there in verse 35? Be on constant watch, right? Even in the dark, even in the middle of the night, be continually alert and then waiting for your master to return, Jesus says, you don't know exactly when your master is coming back, but you've got to be constantly ready, ready to open the door and welcome him in as soon as he arrives. It's kind of like a babysitter waiting for the parents to return home and claim what is theirs. When the master returns, he's only looking for one thing, that the servants have spent their time taking care of his stuff. Like a babysitter, right? You go out for the night, you hire a babysitter, you come back 10 or 10.30 at night. It is good to find out when you walk in the door that all the kids have been bathed, they're asleep in their beds, the trash has been taken out, the kitchen's clean, the dishwasher's running, and the babysitter is sitting on the couch reading a book. A Bible commentary, you know, that's, man, that's a good babysitter, right? That, that's what you, I never had a babysitter like that, but that's, that, that's kind of what Jesus is saying here, right? The master is coming back and the faithful servants are the ones who are dressed for the work. Look at verse 38, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Verse 43, it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Doing so, doing what? Well, working, serving, taking care of God's people and things. Look at verse 47, that servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants, will be beaten with many blows. And it's in this context, working and serving and and watching and waiting for the Lord and expecting the Lord and taking care of God's people and God's things. That's when Jesus sums up the whole deal. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. God laments the fact that his good gifts are going to waste. That's the principle. That's the main point here, okay? That's the takeaway of this whole chapter. That God demands more from those who've been given more. Wait. Is that right? Is that fair? that God expects more out of some people than he expects out of others? Should God expect more out of some people than he expects out of others? Well, don't we all? Don't don't all of us do that? I- I don't think God's being unreasonable. I don't think he's being unfair here. I think all of us hold to this very principle. All of us expect more out of some people than we do others. According to their giftedness. According to how they've been blessed. We always expect more out of those people. I think about Sean Bradley, okay? Now this is, this is 20 years ago, okay? Sean Bradley, basketball player, 7'6", six, two 275. He had like 9 foot arms, okay? Any, any of y'all remember Sean Bradley? 7-6, right? He could dunk a ball without even, I mean, he didn't have to stand on his tiptoes. He just he would reach up and dunk the ball. Yet in his 16 year NBA career, he averaged 8 points and 6 rebounds a game. That's it. He's 7 foot 6, but he never did any of his teams any good. I was covering a Mavericks game. This is this 2002, 2003. I can't remember. Uh, I got there to the American Airlines Center late after the game had started. I thought, I'm going to go down to the media dining room. I'm going to grab a couple of hot dogs, and then I'm going to head out to the court. I get into the media dining room. Game's already started. Nobody's in there. I look at one of the tables. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is sitting at one of the tables eating a hot dog. He was in town to promote something, I can't remember what. He's sitting there, I thought, I'm gonna eat a hot dog with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, how often am I gonna get this chance? This may be it. And so I grab a couple of hot dogs, I walk over his table, he graciously let me sit with him and eat hot dogs. It was the coolest thing ever. And I'm telling you, you'd be so proud of me. I resisted every temptation to call him Roger Murdoch and make airplane jokes. I didn't do it. Even when he said, have you got any more mustard? I didn't say over, Roger. I didn't do any of that. I wanted to. Didn't do it. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and I are watching the first quarter of the Mavericks game on this big TV down there in the dining room. Sean Bradley did something stupid. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar says he won't do the work. He won't do the work. And I said, yeah, he's terrible. That was the kind of penetrating insight my listeners were used to. (laughs) Kareem said, we're on a first name basis at this point. He says, I've been to Dallas twice this year. And both times I've called the Mavericks and offered to work with Sean Bradley. Like I can help him with his positioning. I can help him with his footwork. Both times he has said no. He won't do the work, and you can't do anything with somebody who won't put in the work. I'm thinking, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the leading number one scorer in NBA history, three-time college player of the year, six-time NBA most valuable player. He's got more rings than fingers. He's in the Hall of Fame. He asked Sean Bradley, can I help you become a better player? Bradley says, I'm good. I'm thinking. What a waste, what a travesty, what a sin. If I had Sean Bradley's gifts, right? If I were that tall, if I had his height, if I had his abilities, I would put in the work. I would practice everything I needed to practice. I'd be unstoppable. I would be the best basketball player on the planet. See how we embrace the principle You think about a kid going to Princeton or going to Yale on a full-ride scholarship. He gets kicked out of school, loses his scholarship because he's smoking weed, skipping class. What do we say? What a waste. What a travesty. What What a sin. If I had his brains, if I had his smarts, if I had that kid's gifts, I would apply myself. I would work. I would study. I would do whatever it took. I would do something magnificent that would change the world. See, We like the principle. We embrace the principle. We hold other people to the principle until the tables are turned. I don't like it so much when I'm the one being judged. Then we start to actually question the principle. Wait a second, is it right? Is it fair for God to expect more out of me than he does others? From everyone who has been given much, Jesus says, much will be demanded. Let me suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that much more is demanded of you and demanded of us because of God's gifts. Have you been given much? Do you have a lot? Are you rich? There's no way any of us in here would say no. Because we know we're rich. Let's say we're only talking about money, okay? Let's just consider money. Are you rich? If you make $50,000 a year, you are richer than 97% of the world's population. If you make $85,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. And so, yeah, most of us in this room together this morning, we are loaded. And wealth isn't just measured in money. Our wealth is also measured in options. If you have a lot of choices in your life, then you're wealthy. Because for most people in the world, especially if we consider the whole of human history, the main life choice is, am I going to pick grain today with my right hand or my left? That's the only choice. And now think about the questions we ask. Most of us don't ask, am I going to get to go to college? Most of us ask, which college am I gonna go to? Most of us don't ask, am I going to find a job? The question we ask is, which job is going to make me the happiest? None of us is asking, am I going to eat a meal today? We're all asking, what's for supper? And what about that snack? Those are our questions. That's our level of blessing. That is our level of wealth in this room. 14 or 15 years ago, Carrie Ann and I went to Ukraine to visit some friends of ours who had moved there to become missionaries. David and Olivia Nelson. They're in Harkov, Ukraine. And we spent 10 or 11 days with them there. First day we're there. Uh, everybody in their little church that they had started, everybody in their apartment uh, complex they were making friends with, everybody in the community that they knew. They had invited to this park. We're doing a dinner together. Carrie Ann and I are meeting a lot of people. And uh, I found myself in a group early on that night with uh, a guy named Brian and his wife, Victoria. We're talking. We're, we're chit-chatting as, as best we can. And uh, Victoria looked right at me, and she said, Alan, do you have a big house in Texas? And I'm thinking, I didn't know how to answer that question. Because I'm like, I've got a nice house. David answered it for me. You can't believe the size of Alan's house. Alan has a massive house. His house is the biggest thing you've ever seen. That offended me a little bit. Wait a second, that's not his place. Didn't really know what to think of that. Later on that night, I'm asking David about that. Why did you say that? He said, Alan, y'all are going to be here for a week and a half. You're going to meet tons of people. And every single person you meet while you're here, your house is at least five times bigger than anything they've ever seen. We need those reminders all the time. Because we're programmed to focus on what we don't have. We're bombarded all day and night, constantly, over and over again with what we don't have or with what somebody else has or what I need to buy or what I need to have to make me happy and whole. We forget all the time we already have more than we'll ever possibly need. We're all rich, physically, materially, financially. We are all wealthy beyond most of the world's imagination. But when it comes to eternal matters, when it comes to matters of heaven and hell, when it comes to our body and soul, spiritually speaking, we have even more. Listen to the opening lines of Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then it just It goes on in this crazy run-on sentence where the apostle writes, Christ Jesus chose us in him before the creation of the world. We are holy. We are blameless in his sight. In love, he's adopted us as his daughters and sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, we have his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of sins. We have God's grace that he has lavished on us. Verse 8, we have wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, we have a revelation of God's magnificent will. Verse 11, we've been chosen. Verse 12 and 13, we've been included in Christ. We have the good news of our salvation. We've been marked with the promised Holy Spirit. We have a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of those who belong to God to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. From everyone who's been given much. Much will be demanded. Spiritually speaking, you have been given much. You have been given everything from God in Jesus Christ. Spiritually speaking, you're like Bill Gates and Elon Musk combined with a better haircut. (laughs) Much more is demanded of you and of us because of God's gifts and also because of God's grace. Christ's love compels us. So our salvation from God pushes us. Because of God's grace, much more is demanded of us. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. The Bible says, forgive one another as God has forgiven you. Accept one another as God in Christ has accepted you. 1 Timothy 4, do not neglect your gift. Use it. Share it. You know, Jesus feeds those 5,000 people with a couple of rolls and some fish. Remember the story? You know the story. He gives the food to his disciples, and then his disciples give it to the people, right? What would have happened if the disciples had kept the food to themselves? What would have happened? We're hungry, Lord. Well, here's some bread. Here's some fish. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for lunch. And then the food keeps growing, Thank you, Lord, for dinner too. This is great. Thank you. And the food keeps growing. Lord, we're going to need some to-go boxes here. I'm not sure we can. We can't eat all this right now, but we'll take it home with us. What would have happened if Jesus is giving enough food to the disciples to feed the entire countryside? But they kept it to themselves. That's the principle, right? That's the takeaway. We have a responsibility because of God's grace. Go back to Luke chapter 12. If you look at the very beginning of Luke 12, Jesus says a couple of times, fear God, fear God. He says it uh, three places here. But look at verse 7. Do not be afraid. You are worth more. Verse 32, do not be afraid. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Church, we live by the grace of God. We live because of the grace of God. We live in the grace of God. We live in his love. We have been given his kingdom. What could possibly hold you back? How could you dare to stay on the bench You can't. Why? Because too much is demanded of us. Titus chapter 2. Listen to this. For the grace of God for salvation has appeared to all people and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live upright and godly lives while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God's grace teaches us how to live, and it's not like everybody else. It's different. Much more is demanded. God's grace does not call you to lay in front of your TV at night. God's Holy Spirit is not stirring you to take a family vacation this spring break. Christ's love is not compelling you to clean out the garage next weekend. Now those things are not wrong. It's just that we are very quick to prioritize our hobbies and our entertainment and our work. But we are very slow to embrace the high demands of life in the grace of God. You read any part of the Bible and you have to understand that when you're the recipient of God's great gifts and when you live inside his matchless grace, you don't just walk through practice and show up for games and be comfortable with eight rebounds and six points. And you're not sitting on the bench. God's gifts compel you to do. God's grace motivates you to act, to move, to give. To sacrifice, to serve, to be out there and active, to be in the middle of it more and more every day, not less. You do not get into the faith ring of honor by sitting on your couch or in your pew. When you're blessed by God's gifts and when you're protected by God's grace, it's never about making sure you're doing everything exactly right. It's just making sure you're doing something In God's grace, you never hold back or you never sit out because you might do something wrong or you might mess something up. The key here is never success. The key is always faithfulness. Faithfulness. John chapter 13, Jesus is sitting around the table on that last night with his disciples. Verse 2 says the evening meal was being served. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew, okay? Jesus had it all. Jesus had everything. The Father had given Jesus every single blessing there is under heaven and earth. Jesus had been given all power and all authority. He knew. So, verse 4 says, So, He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus dressed himself for service, and he took care of the needs of others. He considered the needs of others more important than his own. He looked to the interest of others. He took on the very nature of a servant. Our Lord Jesus faithfully entered the fray. And when everything was said and done, he left all of it on the field. Francis Chan writes about his wife's grandma, Clara. And how uh, one night, most of the family, a whole bunch of the family, they all took Grandma Clara out to a play together. And during intermission, Francis leaned over and he said, Grandma Clara, are you enjoying the play? And she said, not really. And he said, why? Why aren't you enjoying the play? And she said, the play is fine, but I'm not sure this is where I want to be when Christ returns. I think I'd rather be helping somebody or I'd rather be, on my knees, praying for somebody. That's shocking, isn't it? I mean, all of us in here, we are all, by God's grace, called to be dressed for service and to have our lamps burning and to be constantly waiting and watching for the Lord. It's just always real surprising to see people who take that seriously. Luke 12, 48 has been my least favorite verse for the past 23, 24 years. It's like a harpoon in my belly. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. Starting in about 2000, 2001, this verse haunted me. Not uh, not like a guilt trip that knocked me down every time I heard it, but more like just this heavy burden that I couldn't shake. I was uh, I was in sports radio, and I loved it. I loved it, and I rationalized it. I justified my radio career. I would say things to people like, "God's given me this platform. I am using this in the Lord's service." I'm the sports director at my radio station, and so one of the things I do, I make sure that we don't use cuss words in our sound bites, not even the little cuss words that the news department uses down the hall. I am serving the Lord with the gifts he's given to me. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded, and that harpoon would twist. But the Lord has given me this platform I mean, when you're covering the Jerry Nairn Rangers and the Dave Campo Cowboys, there's lots of opportunities to talk to people about faith. Just blind, hard faith in the middle of bad times. I'm serving the Lord. I'm a good Christian example on the, on the team planes and in the team locker rooms. I am doing God's will. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And the harpoon twists and pulls I think about Hebrews chapter four. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword or harpoon. It penetrates, ouch. It divides soul and spirit, whoa. It slices through joint and marrow. That sounds serious and painful. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Me, okay? This, this, is, this is me. I've been given much. Materially, physically, financially, I'm rich. I am loaded. Spiritually speaking, God has forgiven me of every single one of my horrible sins against him. And he has restored me back into a righteous relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And by his amazing love, and by his unmatchable grace, it is demanded of me, okay, me, that I use whatever abilities, whatever gifts, whatever opportunities that my God gives me not to talk about the cowboys and the mavericks and the rangers, but to proclaim salvation from God in Christ and his love and mercy for all people and his will and his work to save and restore every man, woman, and child on this planet. And so for three or four years, I went back and forth on this thing. This, this harpoon in my gut. I would wrestle with it. Sometimes I would ignore it. I would fight it. I would pray about it. But I couldn't shake it. It got deeper. And it wouldn't let me go. And we finally got at the guts or the faith or both. And finally acted on what I think God had always been demanding of me. And I will never look back. Ever. The truth is... I got to the point where I couldn't stand the thought of meeting my crucified and risen Lord when he returns and trying to explain to him how I had used all the gifts he had given me and spent every minute of my adult life in studios and press boxes talking about things that didn't matter. Now, that's me, okay? That's my story. That's not you. But what about you? What is your story? How are you going to, how are you already and how will you maybe respond to the gifts and to the grace of God that he has lavished on you? Today's the first Sunday of the new calendar year. A lot of us are making resolutions. And if you don't believe in resolutions, a lot of us are making goals, or we're making plans, a lot of us are deciding right now to do some things differently in this new year. Things with our money, things with our jobs, with our families, with our time, with our leisure. And if you're not already wrestling right now with my least favorite verse, if it's not right now, stuck in your gut and tugging in a couple of uncomfortable places, then you didn't hear it. Listen to Jesus, okay? Listen to him. He is our Lord. And these are his words. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Stand with me, church. Let's pray together. Father, would you please listen to us as we pour out our hearts in thanksgiving and gratitude for the gifts and the grace that you have lavished on us, your children. Father, so many things come to mind. We could be in here for hours, just going down every pew, every row. How has God blessed you? What gifts have you received from the Lord? Spiritually, financially, God, we'd be here all day. We are a blessed people. We are loaded, God, with your grace, with your love, and we're so thankful. God, hear us as we give you thanks. And Father, this morning, in the name of Jesus, our Lord, we ask you for ears to hear, hearts to be open to what you want to show us, what you want to tell us, where you want to lead us. God, give us, each one of us, give us courage. Give us faith. Give us a changed heart, a softer spirit, a willingness to use more and more of what you've given us to serve others, to take care of your people and your things. God, we give this new year to you. Everything we're going to do, everything you're going to give us, God, we give to you for your purposes and to your eternal glory. This we promise. In the name of Jesus, all God's people say together, amen.